Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Well, let's take a look at the trailer for Not Fade Away. I'm starting a band like the Stones. I need someone to back me up on vocal. They're Cuban heels. How come you never talked to me in high school? We talked once. You said something about the pencil sharpener. You have a good voice. I think we should all move to the East Village. There's a music scene there, not here. I could give a crap about music. You wouldn't understand being in a band. That's my true family. Your true family there. They're going to pay your enormous food bills, I assume. You got talent. Play seven nights a week, two shows a night. Call me in six months. We need to discuss what happens if you become man of the family. future either. Just the now. I'll buy dinner. The haircut is too much to ask, but you show up at that restaurant without a tie and a jacket, you and me gonna tangle, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Jordan Hoffman, and tonight's guests, John Magaro and David Chase. to thank uh, the both of you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Jordan Hoffman. I'm a film critic for Film.com and Screen Crush. And with me, I have uh, David Chase and John Magaro, the lead of uh, Not Fade Away, which is a fabulous new movie coming out this week. And um, last night was the premiere at MoMA, and I was just told that there was an after party and it involved karaoke. So this has been a long couple of days for our guests. So. You know, we're going to go easy on him. I'm going to turn on my Apple iPad, which has all my questions here. <laughs> and um, I'm going to direct my, just to let you know how it's going to go, we're going to schmooze a little bit. We're going to show some clips from the film. And then toward the end, we'll have some questions from the audience. So think of something good. And uh, we'll call on you. There are people here with microphones. And we'll, we'll get to it. My first question is for Mr. Chase. Um, who, uh, this is uh, your first project since the end of The Sopranos. Yes. And I would imagine that you were given pretty much a creative blank check. The Sopranos was the biggest show in cable television. It changed the way we watch television, changed popular culture. These are not hyper hyperbolic statements. And this was the project you decided to do, a semi-autobiographical tale about a rock band in the mid-60s. Why, why was that the project that you said, I'm going to double down on this? Well, I had a personal goal of doing a psychological thriller, and everybody told me I should do a psychological thriller. And I, but I just wasn't coming up with any satisfactory ideas, and I had this one percolating in the back of my mind, and I just loved the music from this era. I'm not somebody who's really nostalgic for the 60s, so, but I do, do love this music, and I wanted to keep doing a, <clears throat> do a project where I could keep putting music on film. Uh, like I had done on The Sopranos, so this was a natural. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because it is a movie about a band. And before I saw it, I was thinking, oh, another great movie about a band, like The Commitments or something like that. But it really isn't like that. It's really a reflection of childhood, and it's a very personal film. I liken it more to uh, the John Borman film Hope and Glory or Woody Allen's Radio Days or Amarcord or from, by Fellini or something like that. Very good really comparisons. Well, very good. I'll, I'll try to think of another one real quick. Um, those are the ones that, I, that came to mind while I was watching it because it's very personal and... Like life, the story meanders a little bit, and it's, it's you get a real sense of what it's like to grow up uh, in in this time period. So, I'm wondering. The big question is, how much of that is you, and how much of that is is made up for the movie, or can you not even tell anymore? I have a hard time telling right, anymore. Um, I would say that it certainly is autobiographical in terms of my feelings at that time how I was viewing the world and how much I, how I was introduced to this music and what this music meant to me and love and begin, the beginnings of stirrings of uh, ideas of mortality and things like that. But, it's, it, but the events are not in any kind of chronological order or place that, or, or the people are not like the people that I knew. Now John, your character, uh, he's the drummer in the band, then he eventually becomes the lead singer and then it's not even so much about the band, it's about your development during the mid-60s and the change in the culture that's happening. I'm wondering, you are a young man, you were not around back then. What was, this, was the 60s and specifically the music of the 60s something that you knew about, cared about before you saw this? Or did you have to do a crash course in the Rolling Stones and all that before you started in the film? Um, no, I've gotten this question a few times um, and I always kind of found it I thought people from my peers and folks from my generation had a knowledge of 60s music because it is what I grew up listening to and I did have a familiarity with it before the film. Um, but it turns out a lot of my peers haven't listened to that music, which is a shame because I, I really think that uh, 60s rock and roll is what American music is. I mean, it. it changed everything and I think the music of today is continually influenced by that music from then. Um, so no, so I had, a, I, had a, I had a knowledge of it before that going into this, but I certainly learned more too. Do you have a favorite Stones album? I'd say Fav Let, it, Let It Bleed. Let It Bleed is your favorite Stones album. And do you have a favorite Stones song? This it's tough. It's, every, it's too hard. I mean, there's so many good ones I can't You just... can only take one. I can't take one. What's your favorite Stones album? <laughs> well, Let It Bleed would be right at, maybe Aftermath. I think Let Aftermath. It Aftermath. Okay. I think Let It Bleed. Okay. Do you have one particular favorite song? You're only allowed to take one with you to the desert island. Tell me. No, I'm asking. Tell me. No, tell me the song is the. Yeah. Okay. Which is in the film, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, which leads us to potentially we could take a look at a clip. If you're asking my favorite is Can't You Hear Me Knocking, so you're both wrong, by the way. Oh, that, cool. is, that is the best one because it's the longest one. It's got a, well, actually it might be the longest Stone song, maybe not live version. It's got a sax solo and it's got the ride cymbal. Right. That's as, a great song. As a drummer. Can uh, we take a look at one of the clips when the band is first getting together and they're trying to figure out their sound and they discuss the Bo Diddley beat. Let's take a look at this scene. Two chords. No changes. It's like 
John, it, John, it's not just your character that goes through a lot of changes in this film, it's your hair. Yeah, that was... There's uh, a lot that goes on with your hair. How did that work? Was, was there prosthetics, uh, CGI? Was it, did you have to grow it and come how back? How does it and... work? It was most the budget actually went to the hair. <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a real process. We, you know, you, David, David is very detail-oriented and you, he knows what he wants and he had a, a very specific image for each of the characters' looks. Um, and I have curly hair right now, you can't tell because I cut it all off. So it was really hard to do much with that. We tried to straighten it one time and that just looked ridiculous. Yeah, I remember early on we tried, they tried to straighten it. Um, and then they settled with the Bob Dylan kind of curls like that. And uh, there's basically three looks. The first one was a wig, uh, short hair. And then the second one was my actual hair at that time. And then the last one, they did some extensions. But it was, you know, it was a process. We had to, it took a few hours every day to get this, that thing right. Um, get, getting back to the Stones a little bit, not that this movie is all about the Rolling Stones, but they really loom large in the film. And, and not so much, not only their music and they as sort of larger-than-life personalities, but what they represented in reinterpreting American music and bringing it back to young Americans who would have never known about it. There's a scene in the film where your character is looking at old, um, you know, like old blues records, like old Muddy Waters records, or I think it's um, Lead, Lead Belly. Belly. That's what it is, Lead Belly. Can you talk a little bit about that process as someone who was there at the time and experienced it, um, you know, what it was like discovering this cool, what I think Grail Marcus calls it, the old weird America, this... this the old the, what? The old weird America, sort of these older um, blues music and uh, roots music that existed that young kids didn't know anything about during the uh, 50s and early 60s, but was lurking and that the British sort of reintroduced people to. Well, it, um, <clears throat> that music, which I guess come, at first it comes from the Mississippi Delta, the blues comes from there, and then it moved to Chicago. Um, the radio stations at that time were like de facto segregated. They were, there still are different charts, R&B chart, uh, pop chart. <clears throat> and there was no way, and that was music, that was music, the blues was music for adults, really. Uh, there was no way for kids, it was not played on the radio. Uh, so there was no way for American kids to know anything about it. And it completely passed us by until it was unearthed by British kids. And that's a whole other subject. I'm not too sure about why that happened, but it did. Um, and British people like Lennon and McCartney and George Harrison and those people, you know, uh, and the Stones and the Kinks and uh, so many others, the, the Who, were influenced by American blues and R&B. And then that's how white, Ameri I mean, that's how American white kids got into it. In addition to music, there's like two other big themes in the film, there's uh, Generation Gap and Sexual Revolution. Well, I'm gonna talk about both, but with the Generation Gap, there, there's um, some re really, really interesting scenes and not cliche, you know, Dad, I'm rebelling type scenes between your character and James Gandolfini's character. James Gandolfini plays uh, the father. Um, so I wanna discuss with you, David, Casting James, Gand James Gandolfini. Obviously, you work together on Sopranos. You are known as working together. 
Was there any hesitation in casting him because you have the association of The Sopranos? Or was it like, oh my God, I've got a great part for him and I want him to do it? Uh, no, there was some hesitation. Um, I mean, we thought, I mean, those of us who were making the movie thought it might look, people might get the wrong impression of what the movie was supposed to be about or that it might look, I don't know, what's the word? Uh, incestuous or... Uh, and then when I approached him about it, but we just dis we dispense with that thinking because we just I just I just lit on him as the best one for the role. Then when I talked to him about it, he had the same concern. He said, "This is our first thing. We're you know you want to sure you want to do this? Have me in your first movie?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "I did." So, well, it's interesting because it's a very different character, um, but there are some similarities. I mean, he he like Tony Soprano. Uh, all he really wants is just his household to just be to be calm for 10 minutes. He just wants peace and tranquility and the, the mother's yelling and everybody's yelling at each other. And what, one thing that I found was interesting was that uh, Gandolfini's uh, natural way of speaking is not with the thick Jersey no. Italian accent. But he, he does it again in this film. And I'm, I was curious about your decision to, to go that route because, you know, it, it does break when you see him doing that voice and saying Italian phrases, some slang words and whatnot. You can't help but think about Tony Soprano. Well, sometimes. to me, he doesn't sound like Tony Soprano in this movie, and um, I don't think he thought he was doing that. Fair enough. <laughs> I like that answer. Uh, what was it like for you to a? I mean, this guy's a titan. He's a larger-than-life figure. You're playing opposite him. Plus, you're playing opposite him with this guy directing. These guys made television history, cultural history, world history, really. I, 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 that's heavy-duty shit, and you got to be up there. So, so how did that feel on day one? No, it's intimidating. I mean, I, I've told David this, and I've told Jim this, that I grew up watching The Sopranos, and I loved that show, and I was really inspired by the actors on it and the stories that were told um, on it, and maybe in the weird way the universe works, that's how this maybe came about, because I really learned a lot from that show. Um, so it was certainly intimidating, um, and uh, Jim can be an intimidating presence, but he's a tremendous actor, too, and probably one of the most talented people I've ever had the privilege of working with. Uh, and we had actually worked before. We had done another film a few years ago that has vanished into the void of movies that will never be seen. What was that, what was that called? It's called Down the Shore. We'll see. Who knows? Um, so we had, a, we had, we had knew, known each other from that, so a lot of that intimidation was taken away from our, our previous experience. So this coming back ar around to do this and having him play uh, my character's father, was I was thrilled. I was really excited to reunite with him and get to uh, share those scenes. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, like I mentioned, there is also a love angle and there's some interesting um, discussions about the 60s and sexual revolution. We'll take a look at this clip real quick. How come you never talked to me in high school? We talked. Miss Vogel's class? Once. You said something about the pencil sharpener. I really liked you. Yeah, I know. You have a good voice. Pardon? Thanksgiving at Karen's house when you sang lead. The band sounded more soulful than tonight. 
Anyway, it's just my opinion. You guys don't have a name yet? Well, it's his latest idea. He wants to call us the Lord Byrons. He's got a lot to say. Time is on your side. So that's still fairly early on in the film where two things, he's still just the drummer, not the lead singer, and um, his hair is still relatively short. But this brings up a point I wanted to bring up with you, David, which is in the 60s, this film takes place from late 62 through 68, give or take, right? Those are the... Well, I mean, it takes place from 62 because, well, I don't want to say why, but uh, it, for me, it really takes place between the summer of 63 mm-hmm. and the early winter, uh, early spring of 1968. Okay. So before the Kennedy assassination and before the other Kennedy assassination. Exactly. Okay. Um, those are five years. There's so much cultural change that happens in those five years that I think in modern American history is very different. Like from 2003 to 2008, if I can't, I don't have an image of one of those years, but in those years, years which by the way, I did not live through, I know that there's a big difference between 66 and 68. You know, Sergeant Pepper really changes things, other cultural events, Summer of Love, you know, and I'm wondering, is that something that only happened during the 60s, or is that happening all the time and we're just not hip to it? I think, I think it's happening all the time. I and mean, maybe, maybe there wasn't much difference between 2003 and 2008, but certainly between 2001 and 2006, uh, there was a big difference. Um, um, I do think that's happening all the time, and we're not always aware of it. <clears throat> but what did happen there was that music changed completely. Uh, music totally took on a, a different different size and scope and, and form. Um, and it, it's mostly, I guess, if you can make it compare it to anything, you'd probably have to, have to compare it to the internet revolution, really, that's going on now. What are the milestones for you during those five years? Do you have in your head, this is pre, you know, this, this is pre-satisfaction, this is post-satisfaction, but pre-Sergeant Pepper, this is post-Jimi Hendrix. Are there, in your head, clear lines of distinction? Um, they are, but you know, as with the passage of time, they're getting all <laughs> blur, bleeding into one another. Sure enough. But there was a time when, when you had very... I mean, I just think it's a fascinating p- part in our history that, <clears throat> there, that there was so much change in music happening with such, with, in the matter of mere months between them. I mean, It's hard to... That's what I was trying to say before. It's really hard to understand now, or to paint the picture of it. I don't think I succeeded at doing it here. Um, what it was like between any two given Beatles albums or Rolling Stone albums. Because if you liked, if you were listening to say, okay, the Meet the Beatles is a great album, that blew everybody's mind, no one had heard anything like that. Um, but, but to go like a few years later to go to say Rubber Soul. And then the difference between the next album, which is Revolver, it's like, it's a, almost a different band. It's almost a different band and certainly a whole different voice and a whole different way of doing things and musically more advanced and technologically more advanced and you couldn't believe it. And then it was happening every six months. Some, the Stones would do it, they would do it, the Kinks would do it, Dylan would do it. The revolution, it just was, you couldn't wait to see what the next step was. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I really 
loved about this movie is that you do compress time and you, you see the changes. At the beginning of the movie, your character is, is, I wouldn't say he's a square, but he's talking about joining the ROTC maybe. He's a little square. And then at the end, and we'll get to that in a little bit, he's running around L.A. in a Bob Dylan jacket with no money in his pocket and he doesn't know what the hell's going to happen with his life. So it's very, 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 very cool. Um, one of the other changes, of course, is your relationship with uh, the girlfriend character. Um, where your character thinks he's very progressive and, you know, modern, but when it comes to sexual, you know, ownership, whoa, you know, you're, you're not quite as advanced for that. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those scenes. Uh, in, what, in what way? Well, I just, it was, it was, I thought it was very well, I thought it was very realistic I, about how a guy who can think he's really modern but when it comes to oh my girlfriend slept with my friend whoa hold on well i i mean i think that's a testament to david's writing and storytelling you know he wrote these scenes and he uh gave his characters honest feelings i mean i i think a lot of people can relate to that i certainly can relate to being in a relationship and caring about someone and having jealousy over things that you shouldn't feel jealous about, and also at the same time feeling like I'm a progressive liberal person who is open-minded, yet you still fall into these traps where you get angry over things you shouldn't get angry about. I think that's a real person, and that's an honest person with warts and flaws um, and ups and downs, and David painted those pictures for us. So, yeah. David, most of the movies set in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I, I've lived in New York 20 years, but I did grow up in Jersey, so you can Where? never freehold. Uh-huh. can never really get rid of, you know. I try not that's to think about That's where Bruce Springsteen grew up, right? That's where Bruce grew up, Federici's Pizza, Danny Federici's family. Oh, really? It's, it's a good place. Um, New York looms as like the city on the hill to these guys, which yeah. is very realistic. And then once they get to New York, LA is, is the real golden the real, you know, brass ring. Can you talk a little bit about how New York in the 60s, particularly the mystique of the village where they all want to go, how, what was your experience like growing up about visiting and... and um, I grew up, you know, 16 miles from New York. Um, if you went to the top of the t- tallest hill that we had there, you could see New York from my town. Um, at the same time, in my town there were farms and vegetable stands and um, horses and um, I always feel that I had the best of both worlds. I grew up in a kind of a bucolic kind of our town kind of a town and yet um, I could get on this bus and go to New York City and when I was very young you know and see Ornette Coleman beat poetry readings and buy a switchblade knife and all that (laughs) stuff. Do you remember which clubs you would go to? Does any of the names ring of? Uh, well, we try. Yeah, I went to the Village Gate, village and Gate, I went sure. to the Village. It's now uh, it's CVS, but yeah. Oh uh, yeah, it really. Yeah. Village Gate, uh, and there was another one, Village Vanguard. Village Vanguard's still there. Village so Vanguard. And then there, during the folk time, we went to this place called Kettle of Fish and uh, sort of the back, f- the dugout club and Night Owl and. Who were some of the performers you saw? Other than Ornette Coleman, where this, do you have some names that you recall? Um, I saw, well, I, here's what I always remember. Think I saw a, a sister act called the Simon Sisters. They were like a folk singing sisters duet. And that was Carly Simon and her sister. Wow. 
uh, Suzanne or whatever her name was, but at that time they were just called the Simon Sisters and they did kind of like Joan Baezzi sort of stuff. Sure, sure. That's really cool. That's really cool. Well, we're going to take, a, uh, um, in a little bit, we'll have some questions from the audience for people who have them. But before we do, um, there's a scene um, it's set in New York in a village club where the band gets an opportunity to meet with a big record producer and they, they play a song for him. And the song, it goes over well and then goes over, yeah. I mean, he didn't yeah, it throw it well. Yeah, it goes over well. But um, then they have a sit-down discussion about it afterwards. I took the liberty of writing some things down during your set. Is that a recording contract? Going to go-go, Easter parade. You never know. You might get asked to play it in season if people are drinking enough. Those are two or 20. I want you to learn them. Play as many bars and coffee houses as you can. Ensconce yourself here in New York. Pay your dues. Make your living from it. Play seven nights a week two shows a night, and then call me in six months. I don't understand. Can you just listen? Learn 25 new songs? It's a huge amount of time and effort. That's why it's called the music business. All these kids. Um, cool. Well, listen, um, why don't we take a few questions, and then we'll spoil the ending of the movie real quick. Uh, first of all, Mr. Chase, I'm a great admirer of your work. Thank you. Uh, what do you think? Like, what do you think? Did you learn from the Sopranos and from that, from all the work that you did those years that you brought into making this? Like, would this have been a very different film if you had made it before working on the Sopranos? Uh, undoubtedly. I mean, for example, I mean, I, <clears throat> I don't think I could have made this this film unless I was a parent myself, unless I'd had children. If I'd made this film before I ever had a child, it would be vastly different. And The Sopranos would have been a vastly different show, too. Um, having been a father, I, I understand a little bit more about the parents' point of view, or how parents see things, and, how, and having seen my own child develop, how, see, how a child's world develops their worldview. That's the most important part of it, I think. It's a really interesting point, because in a movie like this, it's almost your, your sympathies are 100% with the rebellious kid. You know, and you're like, ah, dad, shut up. He, he's got to play rock and roll. Stop being a pest. Um, but with this, there's, you really do side with, with both sides. The father obviously does not want him to, he wants him to go to college and, you know, doesn't think rock and roll is a reasonable thing to waste his time with. And there is a lot of friction, and you really, your sympathies are, are on both sides. Um, can you talk a little bit about when you were directing those scenes, about making sure that everybody, you know, that, that, nobody would be too good at their argument, you know, because you want the audience to really be conflicted. At least I was conflicted. Uh, I think that's in, I think the, where that balance comes is in the screenplay, not in the direction so much. I think once the screenplay is written, um, you can't tell an actor will be less convincing, you know, or don't make your argument sound so good, or, uh, like look out the window while you're talking or something. He just doesn't work. This is like why that. I'm not a director. I'm uh, <laughs> sitting up here. Hi, David. John, nice to meet you. Um, David, this question's for you. In the last couple of years, I've seen a, kind of a return in the film industry to storytelling with not only your film, but Wildflowers and there are a couple other pictures that have made some uh, premieres in the last couple of years. Do you kind of see the trend in the film business, seeing as though we've gone so far away from it in television, 
returning to the art of storytelling because that's been missed. We've gone so far away from what in television? Well, now with the with reality t television oh. and so much of the stuff that the fanfare that people are attracted to in the movie business, it seems that this is sort of the last bastion to sort of return back to storytelling, actual real storytelling. And do you see that as a trend that's going to stick around for a while? Uh, I don't feel sanguine about it. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it's an endangered species. But I, in movies, movie making, yeah, it's, I think it's an endangered species. Uh, I don't know why, but people don't seem... I uh, actually don't agree with you. I, I think that... Um, and most people say nowadays that the real storytelling is in television. I don't know that I agree with that, but that's what people say. That since HBO and AMC and all that, that the real, if you really want to see storytelling about human events and subjects, that's where you go. Uh, movies are, you know, really, really, really being taken over by uh, humanoids, you know, on both sides of the camera. And um, although this, everybody's saying that this season, there's all these really strong narrative movies about people, and it seems to be the case. So maybe that's a new trend, I don't know. I, 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 I doubt it. It's too easy to do the other thing. I think that there's just more material now. So there's more garbage, but there's more good stuff also. Oh, that could be. There's just so, which the problem is that there's so much to take in that, that something slipped through the cracks or it's, just, it's impossible to keep track of everything. But uh, there was just so many, so many channels, so many shows, so many uh -huh. films, independents that are just ignoring the traditional distribution methods um, that... You know, there are still great things coming through. And you're right, this is a very good year for, you know, awards ca caliber films. Say. Hey, um, my question isn't as complex as everyone else's, but uh, my question's for John. I was wondering if you'd played any, in if you'd played instruments before you took on the role or sang before, and if you hadn't, how hard was it for you to pick up on it? Um, no, I didn't play drums before I did this, and I only sang it for fun, not like that. Um, yeah, uh, we had a we had a boot camp, is what we've been calling it, um, where Stephen Van Zant, who was a producer on the film, um, organized this camp for Jack Houston and Will Brill and myself to learn our instruments because they didn't play guitar either. Um, and we had about three months where we, you know, every day came in and drilled and practiced together and sang as well as drumming. Um, and it took, you know, it took about a month before we were able to sort of eke out some songs. And then by the third month, we were actually functioning as a band and able to play the songs that we play in the film. Um, yeah, so it surprisingly went quick. Uh, but I think that is a testament to the teachers who we were surrounded by. I was wondering if you could uh, highlight any differences between writing for a film and writing for a series, a television, or just a series in general versus a film. The, the writing of it? The writing of it. It's a different process. Uh, the writing of a TV series is kind of a, uh, it's more of a workshop. I don't mean like a drama workshop, more like, of a, uh, like a workshop where you have a bunch of workmen working. Because uh, you, there's like, in network show there's 22 episodes, or in a cable show there's 13 episodes, and no one person can um, 
write all those episodes. You have to delegate some of that responsibility. Even if you created the show, you have to give some of the later the, the other episodes out to other people to write. And you may rewrite those, but you just need you do need help in getting just getting the uh, <clears throat> just getting thirteen scripts is like really hard. You could never do that by yourself. And, and people have tried it and then and actually had not very good results. Uh, they do it in England, but I think they only do six six episodes per show. I think per season. Um, in a feature, you're really just by yourself. Um, I mean, in a TV show, theoretically, you have your you. There's a thing called a writers' room, and you go you all go there every day, and you talk and shoot the shit and about what what we're going to write about, and you go off the subject all the time because no, it's hard for people to buckle down about well, what should we do next? You go, I don't know, what should we do next? I don't know. And you start talking, and you order lunch, and you start talking about the lunch, and then you start talking about something that happened to you in high school, or this maniac you saw on the subway, and that's what the whole day is like. Uh, but usually out of that comes some kernel of an idea. When you're writing a feature, at least the way, like this, it's all in your own head. You have only yourself to talk to, and uh, it's not fun. Um. During the writing of the movie, you were really, you know, kind of switching back and forth as you're writing from the father's perspective and the son's perspective, and I can imagine that get a, getting kind of schizophrenic going back and forth between the two. Did you find it challenging to kind of switch between the different headspaces of writing between, you know, from two different points of view that I'm sure you could identify with at a different point in your life? Um, I didn't find it particularly challenging. That's my job. If, if you're a screenwriter, a dra dramatist, that's your, always your job. Is, you know, you've seen the, the two masks, you know, comedy and drama. And there's always a pro protagonist and an antagonist in any scene. And they always have different points of view. Now, no matter whether it's something like this or, I don't know, Wreck-It Ralph, I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Um, uh, there's always two points, you know, one person is saying one thing and the other person's arguing with them. They're, they're, most dramatic scenes are some sort of a conflict. That's essential to the whole thing. I have, if I may take a privilege here. Yeah, sure. I, anybody who comes up to you and asks you about the specifics about ambiguous endings to The Sopranos is an idiot. But I have one. I need to know how did Hesh's girlfriend get killed? Hesh's, how, who was Hesh's girlfriend? The, the woman. She just died. We didn't know if it was a heart attack or if she got poisoned or. I think she had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> It's a long time. What, I mean, the African American woman. Yes, yes. It's toward the end, and Hesh is not. He, he's not going to oh, give Tony yeah. wants money, and he's like, "Screw you, Tony! I'm not giving any money." He's in the bathroom. He comes back. Hesh's mm. girlfriend is dead, and he flips out and gives Tony the money and starts kissing his ass. She was not sick. She was a healthy woman. No, there was. We laid. I think we laid some feeble pipe in there about something that was wrong with her. I forget what it was. Okay, what, so there was natural. Didn't she causes? say, "I don't feel well"? Or, or something or like that. But she was poisoned, or something. How did they get to her? Uh, was it natural? Oh no, causes? it wasn't a killing. It wasn't a murder. It was natural. Yeah, natural. she just died of natural causes. I have been up nights for years on that one. Well, okay. you can sleep now. All right, you? thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I want to say thank you to David Chase for thank coming you to the Apple much. Store today. I want to thank say you. thank you to John Maggio for coming to the Apple Store today. I want to say thank you for you and for those of you listening and podcasting at home. And we'll see you on the next one. Thank, thank you. you.